Section 14 of The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Vendetti. The Good Soldier, A Tale of Passion by Ford Maddox Ford. Part 3, Chapter 5. I call this the saddest story rather than the Ashburnham tragedy, just because it is so sad just because there was no current to draw things along to a swift and inevitable end. There is about it none of the elevation that accompanies tragedy. There is about it no nemesis, no destiny. Here were two noble people, for I am convinced that both Edward and Leonora had noble natures. Here, then, were two noble natures, drifting down life like fireships afloat, on a lagoon and causing miseries, heartaches, agony of the mind, and death. And they themselves steadily deteriorated. And why? For what purpose? To point what lesson? It is all a darkness. There is not even any villain in the story, for even Major Basil, the husband of the lady who next and really comforted the unfortunate Edward, even Major Basil was not a villain in this piece. He was a slack, loose, shiftless sort of fellow, but he did not do anything to Edward. Whilst they were in the same station in Burma, he borrowed a good deal of money, though, really, since Major Basil had no particular vices, it was difficult to know why he wanted it. He collected different types of horses' bits, from the earliest times to the present day. But since he did not prosecute even this occupation with any vigor, he could not have needed much money for the acquirement say of the bit of Genghis Khan's charger, if Genghis Khan had a charger. And when I say that he borrowed a good deal of money from Edward, I do not mean to say that he had more than a thousand pounds from him during the five years that the connection lasted. Edward, of course, did not have a great deal of money. Leonora was seeing to that. Still, he may have had five hundred pounds a year English, for his manuscripts, for his regimental subscriptions, and for keeping his men smart. Leonora hated that. She would have preferred to buy dresses for herself or to have devoted the money to paying off a mortgage. Still, with her sense of justice, she saw that since she was managing a property, bringing in 3000 a year with a view to re-establishing it as a property of 5000 a year, and since the property really, if not legally, belonged to Edward, it was reasonable and just that Edward should get a slice of his own. Of course, she had the devil of a job. I don't know that I have got the financial details exactly right. I'm a pretty good head at figures, but my mind still sometimes mixes up pounds with dollars, and I get a figure wrong. Anyhow, the proposition was something like this. Properly worked and without rebates to the tenants and keeping up schools and things, the Banshaw estate should have brought in about 5000 a year when Edward had it. It brought in actually about four. I'm talking in pounds, not dollars. Edward's excesses with the Spanish lady had reduced this value to about three, as the maximum figure without reductions. Leonora wanted to get it back to five. She was, of course, very young, to be faced with such a proposition. Twenty-four is not a very advanced age. So she did things with a youthful vigor that she would very likely have made more merciful if she had known more about life. She got Edward remarkably on the hop. He had to face her in a London hotel. 
when he crept back from Monte Carlo with his poor tail between his poor legs. As far as I can make out, she cut short his first mumblings and his first attempts at affectionate speech with words something like, We're on the verge of ruin. Do you intend to let me pull things together? If not, I shall retire to Hendon on my jointure. Hendon represented a convent, to which he occasionally went for what is called a retreat in Catholic circles. And poor dear Edward knew nothing, absolutely nothing. He did not know how much money he had, as he put it, blued at the tables. It might have been a quarter of a million, for all he remembered. He did not know whether she knew about La Dolcequenta, or whether she imagined that he had gone off yachting or had stayed at Monte Carlo. He was just dumb, and he just wanted to get into a hole and not have to talk. Leonora did not make him talk, and she said nothing herself. I do not know much about English legal procedure. I cannot, I mean, give technical details of how they tied him up. But I know that two days later, without her having said more than I have reported to you, Leonora and her attorney had become the trustees, as I believe it is called, of all Edward's property. And there was an end of Edward as the good landlord and father of his people. He went out. Leonora then had three thousand a year at her disposal. She occupied Edward with getting himself transferred to a part of his regiment that was in Burma, if that was the right way to put it. She herself had an interview lasting a week or so with Edward's land steward. She made him understand that the estate would have to yield up to its last penny. Before they left for India, she had let Branshaw for seven years at a thousand a year. She sold two Van Dykes and a little silver for eleven thousand pounds, and she raised on mortgage twenty-nine thousand. That went to Edward's money-lending friends in Monte Carlo. So she had to get twenty-nine thousand back, for she did not regard the Van Dykes and the silver as things she would have to replace. They were just frills to the Ashburnham vanity. Edward cried for two days over the disappearance of his ancestors, and then she wished she had not done it. But it did not teach her anything, and it lessened such esteem as she had for him. She did not also understand that to let Branshaw affected him with a feeling of physical soiling, that it was almost as bad for him as if a woman belonging to him had become a prostitute. That was how it did affect him. But I dare say she felt just as bad about the Spanish dancer. So she went at it. They were eight years in India, and during the whole of that time she insisted that they must be self-supporting. They had to live on his captain's pay, plus the extra allowance for being at the front. She gave him the five hundred a year for Ashburnham frills, as she called it to herself, and she considered she was doing him very well. Indeed, in a way she did him very well, but it was not his way. She was always buying him expensive things which, as it were, she took off her own back. I have, for instance, spoken of Edward's leather cases. Well, they were not Edward's at all. They were Leonora's manifestations. He liked to be clean, but he preferred, as it were, to be threadbare. She never understood that, and all that pigskin was her idea of a reward to him for putting her up to a little speculation by which she made eleven hundred pounds. She did herself the threadbare business. When they went up to a place called Simla, where, I, as I understand, it is cool in the summer and very social. When they went up to Simois for their health, it was she who had him prancing around, as we should say in the United States, 
on a thousand-dollar horse with the gladdest of glad rags all over him. She herself used to go into retreat. I believe that it was very good for her health, and it was also very inexpensive. It was probably also very good for Edward's health, because he pranced about mostly with Mrs. Basil, who was a nice woman and very, very kind to him. I suppose she was his mistress, but I never heard it from Edward, of course. I seem to gather that they carried it on in a high romantic fashion, very proper for both of them, or at any rate for Edward. She seems to have been a tender and gentle soul who did what he wanted. I do not mean to say that she was without character. That was her job, to do what Edward wanted. So I figured it out, that for those five years, Edward wanted long passages of deep affection, kept up in long, long talks, and that every now and then they fell, which would give Edward an opportunity for remorse and an excuse to lend the Major another fifty. I don't think that Mrs. Basil considered it to be falling. She just pitied him and loved him. You see, Leonora and Edward had to talk about something during those years. You cannot be absolutely dumb when you live with a person unless you are an inhabitant of the north of England or the state of Maine. So Leonora imagined the cheerful device of letting him see the accounts of his estate and discussing them with him. He did not discuss them much. He was trying to behave prettily. But it was old Mr. Mumford, the farmer, who did not pay his rent, that threw Edward into Mrs. Basil's arms. Mrs. Basil came upon Edward in the dusk in the Burmese garden, with all sorts of flowers and things, and he was cutting up the crop with his sword, not a walking stick. He was carrying on and cursing in a way that you would not believe. She ascertained that an old gentleman called Mumford had been ejected from his farm and had been given a little cottage rent-free where he lived on ten shillings a week from a farmer's benevolent society, supplemented by seven that was being allowed to him by the Ashburnham trustees. Edward had just discovered that fact from the estate accounts. Leonora had left them in his dressing room and he had begun to read them before taking off his marching kit. That was how he came to have a sword. Leonora considered that she had been unusually generous to old Mr. Mumford in allowing him to inhabit a cottage rent-free and in giving him seven shillings a week. Anyhow, Mrs. Basil had never seen a man in such a state as Edward was. She had been passionately in love with him for quite a time, and he had been longing for her sympathy and admiration with a passion as deep. That was how they came to speak about it, in the Burmese garden, under the pale sky, with sheaves of severed vegetation, misty and odorous, in the night around their feet. I think they behaved themselves with decorum for quite a time. After that, though Mrs. Basil spent so many hours over the accounts of the Ashburnham estate that she got the name of every field by heart. Edward had a huge map of his land in his harness room, and Major Basil did not seem to mind. I believe that people do not mind much in lonely stations. It might have lasted for ever if the Major had not been made what is called a brevet colonel during the shuffling of troops that went on just before the South African War. He was set off somewhere else, and, of course, Mrs. Basil could not stay with Edward. Edward ought, I suppose, to have gone to the Transvaal. It would have done him a good deal of good to get killed, but Leonora would not let him. She had heard awful stories of the extravagance of the Hussar Regiment in wartime and they left hundred bottle cases of champagne at five guineas a bottle 
on the veldt and so on. Besides, she preferred to see how Edward was spending his five hundred a year. I don't mean to say that Edward had any grievance in that. He was never a man of the deeds of heroism sort, and it was just as good for him to be sniped at up in the hills of the northwestern frontier as to be shot at by an old gentleman in a top hat at the bottom of some spruit. Those are more or less his words about it. I believe he quite distinguished himself over there. At any rate, he had his DSO and was made a brevet major. Leonora, however, was not in the least keen on his soldiering. She hated also his deeds of heroism. One of their bitterest quarrels came after he had, for the second time, in the Red Sea jumped overboard from the troopship and rescued a private soldier. She stood it the first time and even complimented him. But the Red Sea was awful that trip, and the private soldiers seemed to develop a suicidal craze. It got on Leonora's nerves. She figured Edward, for the rest of that trip, jumping overboard every ten minutes. And the mere cry of man overboard is a disagreeable, alarming, and disturbing thing. The ship gets stopped, and there are all sorts of shouts. And Edward would not promise not to do it again, though fortunately they struck a streak of cooler weather when they were in the Persian Gulf. Leonora had got it into her head that Edward was trying to commit suicide, so I guess it was pretty awful for her when he would not give the promise. Leonora ought never to have been on that troop ship, but she got there somehow, as an economy. Major Basil discovered his wife's relation with Edward just before he was sent to his other station. I don't know whether that was a blackmailer's adroitness or just a trick of destiny. He may have known of it all the time, or he may not. At any rate, he got hold of just about then some letters and things. It cost Edward three hundred pounds immediately. I do not know how it was arranged. I cannot imagine how even a blackmailer can make his demands. I suppose there is some sort of way of saving your face. I figure the Major is disclosing the letters to Edward with furious oaths, then accepting his explanations that the letters were perfectly innocent if the wrong construction were not put upon them. Then the Major would say, I say, old chap, I'm deuced hard up. Couldn't you lend me three hundred or so? I fancy that was how it was, and year by year, after that, there would come a letter from the Major saying that he was deuced hard up, and couldn't Edward lend him three hundred or so? Edward was pretty hard hit when Mrs. Basil had to go away. He really had been very fond of her, and he remained faithful to her memory for quite a long time, and Mrs. Basil had loved him very much and continued to cherish a hope of reunion with him. Three days ago there came a quite proper but very lamentable letter from her to Leonora, asking to be given particulars as to Edward's death. She had read the advertisement of it in an Indian paper. I think she must have been a very nice woman. And then the Ashburnhams were moved somewhere up towards a place or a district called Chitaral. I am no good at geography of the Indian Empire. By that time, they had settled down into a model couple, and they never spoke in private to each other. Leonora had given up even showing the accounts of the Ashburnham estate to Edward. He thought that that was because she had piled up such a lot of money that she did not want him to know how she was getting on any more. But as a matter of fact, after five or six years, it had penetrated to her mind 
that it was painful to Edward to have to look on at accounts of his estate and have no hand in the management of it. She was trying to do him a kindness, and up in Chitral, poor dear little Maisie Maiden came along. That was the most unsettling to Edward of all his affairs. It made him suspect that he was inconstant. The affair with the Dulcicita he had sized up as a short attack of madness, like hydrophobia. His relations with Mrs. Basil had not seemed to him to imply moral turpitude of a gross kind. The husband had been complacent. They had really loved each other. His wife was very cruel to him and had long ceased to be a wife to him. He thought that Mrs. Basil had been his soulmate, separated from him by an unkind fate, something sentimental of that sort. But he discovered that whilst he was still writing long weekly letters to Mrs. Basil, he was beginning to be furiously impatient if he missed seeing Maisie Maiden during the course of the day. He discovered himself watching the doorways with impatience. He discovered that he disliked her boy-husband very much for hours at a time. He discovered that he was getting up at unearthly hours in order to have time later in the morning to go for a walk with Maisie Maiden. He discovered himself using little slang words that she used and attaching a sentimental value to those words. Those, you understand, were discoveries that came so late that he could do nothing but drift. He was losing weight. His eyes were beginning to fall in. He had touches of bad fever. He was, as he described it, pipped. And one ghastly hot day, he suddenly heard himself say to Leonora, say, couldn't we take Mrs. Maiden with us to Europe and drop her at Nauheim? He hadn't had the least idea of saying that to Leonora. He had merely been standing, looking at an illustrated paper, waiting for dinner. Dinner was twenty minutes late, or the Ashburnhams would not have been alone together. No, he hadn't had the least idea of framing that speech. He had been standing in a silent agony of fear, of longing, of heat, of fever. He was thinking that they were going back to Branshaw in a month, and that Maisie Maiden was going to remain behind and die. And then, that had come out. The punka swished in the darkened room. Leonora lay exhausted and motionless in her cane lounge. Neither of them stirred. They were both, at the same time, very ill in indefinite ways. And then Leonora said, Yes, I promised it to Charlie Maiden this afternoon. I have offered to pay her expenses myself. Edward just saved himself from saying, Good God! You see, he had not the least idea of what Leonora knew about Maisie, about Mrs. Basil, even about La Dolcicita. It was a pretty enigmatic situation for him. It struck him that Leonora must be intending to manage his loves as she managed his money affairs, and it made her more hateful to him and more worthy of respect. Leonora, at any rate, had managed his money to some purpose. She had spoken to him a week before, for the first time in several years, about money. She had made twenty-two thousand pounds out of the Branshaw land, and seven by the letting of Branshaw furnished. By fortunate investments in which Edward had helped her, she had made another six or seven thousand that might well become more. The mortgages were all paid off, so that except for the departure of the two Van Dykes and the silver, they were as well off as they had been before the Dulcicita had acted the locust. It was Leonora's great achievement. 
She laid the figures before Edward, who maintained an unbroken silence. I propose, she said, that you should resign from the army and that we should go back to Branshaw. We are both too ill to stay here any longer. Edward said nothing at all. This, Leonora continued passionately, is the great day of my life. Edward said, You have managed the job amazingly. You are a wonderful woman. He was thinking that if they went back to Branshaw, they would leave Maisie Maiden behind. That thought occupied him exclusively. They must, undoubtedly, return to Branshaw. There could be no doubt that Leonora was too ill to stay in that place, she said. You understand that the management of the whole of the expenditure of the income will be in your hands. There will be five thousand a year. She thought that he cared very much about the expenditure of an income of five thousand a year and that the fact that she had done so much for him would rouse in him some affection for her. But he was thinking exclusively of Maisie Maiden, of Maisie, thousands of miles away from him. He was seeing the mountains between them, blue mountains and the sea and sunlit plains. He said, That is very generous of you. And she did not know whether that were praise or a sneer. That had been a week before, and all that week he had passed in an increasing agony at the thought of those mountains, that sea, those sunlit plains, would be between him and Maisie Maiden. That thought shook him in the burning nights. The sweat poured from him, and he trembled with cold in the burning noons. At that thought, he had no minute's rest. His bowels turned round and round within him, his tongue was perpetually dry, and it seemed to him that the breath between his teeth was like the air from a pest-house. He gave no thought to Leonora at all. He had sent in his papers. They were to leave in a month. It seemed to him to be his duty to leave that place and go away to support Leonora. He did his duty. It was horrible in their relationship at that time, that whatever she did caused him to hate her. He hated her when he found that she proposed to set him up as the Lord of Branshaw again, as a sort of dummy lord in swaddling clothes. He imagined that she had done this in order to separate him from Maisie Maiden. Hatred hung in all the heavy nights and filled the shadowy corners of the room. So when he heard that she had offered to the maiden boy to take his wife to Europe with him, Automatically, he hated her since he hated all that she did. It seemed to him, at that time, that she could never be other than cruel, even if by accident an act of hers were kind. Yes, it was a horrible situation. But the cool breezes of the ocean seemed to clear up that hatred as if it had been a curtain. They seemed to give him back admiration for her and respect. The agreeableness of having money lavishly at command, the fact that it had brought for him the companionship of Maisie Maiden. These things began to make him see that his wife might have been right in the starving and scraping upon which she had insisted. He was at ease. He was even radiantly happy when he carried cups of bullion for Maisie Maiden along the deck. One night, when he was leaning beside Leonora over the ship's side, he said suddenly, By Jove! You're the finest woman in the world. I wish we could be better friends. She just turned away without a word and went to her cabin. Still, she was very much better in health. And now, I suppose I must give you Leonora's side of the case. 
That is very difficult, for Leonora, if she preserved an unchanged front, changed very frequently her point of view. She had been drilled in her tradition, in her upbringing, to keep her mouth shut. But there were times, she said, when she was so near yielding to the temptation of speaking that afterwards she shuddered to think of those times. You must postulate that what she desired above all things was to keep a shut mouth to the world, to Edward and to the women that he loved. If she spoke, she would despise herself. From the moment of his unfaithfulness with La Dolciquita, she never acted the part of wife to Edward. It was not that she intended to keep herself from him as a principle forever. Her spiritual advisers, I believe, forbade that. But she stipulated that he must in some way, perhaps symbolical, come back to her. She was not very clear as to what she meant. Probably she did not know herself. Or perhaps she did. There were moments when he seemed to be coming back to her. There were moments when she was within a hair, yielding to her physical passion for him. In just the same way, at moments, she almost yielded to the temptation to denounce Mrs. Basil to her husband, or Maisie Maiden to hers. She desired then to cause the horrors and pains of public scandals, for watching Edward, more intently and with more straining of ears than that which a cat bestows upon a bird overhead, she was aware of the progress of his passion for each of these ladies. She was aware of it from the way in which his eyes returned to doors and gateways. She knew from his tranquillities when he had received satisfactions. At times, she imagined herself to see more than was warranted. She imagined that Edward was carrying on intrigues with other women, with two at once, with three, for whole periods. She imagined him to be a monster of libertinage, and she could not see that he could have anything against her. She left him his liberty. She was starving herself to build up his fortunes. She allowed herself none of the joys of femininity, no dresses, no jewels, hardly even friendships, for fear they should cost money. And yet, oddly, she could not be but aware that both Mrs. Basil and Maisie Maiden were nice women. The curious, discounting eye which one woman can turn on another did not prevent her seeing that Mrs. Basil was very good to Edward and Mrs. Maiden very good for him. That seemed to her to be a monstrous and incomprehensible working of fates. Incomprehensible. Why, she asked herself again and again, did none of the good deeds that she did for her husband ever come through to him, or appear to him as good deeds? By what trick of mania could not he let her be as good to him as Mrs. Basil was? Mrs. Basil was not so extraordinarily dissimilar to herself. She was, it was true, tall, dark, with soft, mournful voice, and a great kindness of manner for every created thing, from punka men to flowers on the trees. But she was not so well read as Leonora, at any rate, in learned books. Leonora could not stand novels. But even with all her differences, Mrs. Basil did not appear to Leonora to differ so very much from herself. She was truthful, honest, and, for the rest, just a woman. And Leonora had a vague sort of idea that, to a man, all women are the same after three weeks of close intercourse. She thought that the kindness should no longer appeal, the soft and mournful voice no longer thrill, the tall darkness no longer give a man the illusion that he was going into the depths of an unexplored wood. 
She could not understand how Edward could go on and on, wandering over Mrs. Basil. She could not see why he should continue to write her long letters after their separation. After that, indeed, she had a very bad time. She had, at that period, what I will call the monstrous theory of Edward. She was always imagining him ogling at every woman that he came across. She did not, that year, go into her teeth at Simla, because she was afraid that he would corrupt her maid in her absence. She imagined him carrying on intrigues with native women or Eurasians at dances. She was in a fever of watchfulness. She persuaded herself that this was because she had a dread of scandals. Edward might get himself mixed up with a marriageable daughter of some man who would make a row or some husband who would matter. But really, she acknowledged afterwards to herself that she was hoping that Mrs. Basil being out of the way, the time might have come when Edward should return to her. All that period she passed in an agony of jealousy and fear, the fear that Edward might really become promiscuous in his habits, so that, in an odd way, she was glad when Maisie Maiden came along, and she realized that she had not before been afraid of husbands and of scandals since then, she did her best to keep Maisie's husband unsuspicious. She wished to appear so trustful of Edward that Maiden could not possibly have any suspicion. It was an evil position for her, but Edward was very ill, and she wanted to see him smile again. She thought that if he could smile again through her agency, he might return, through gratitude and satisfied love, to her. At that time, she thought that Edward was a person of light and fleeting passions. And she could understand Edward's passion for Maisie, since Maisie was one of those women to whom other women will allow magnetism. She was very pretty, she was very young, in spite of her heart, she was very gay and light on her feet. And Leonora was really very fond of Maisie, who was fond enough of Leonora. Leonora, indeed, imagined that she could manage this affair all right. She had no thought of Maisie's being led into adultery. She imagined that if she could take Maisie and Edward to Nuheim, Edward would see enough of her to get tired of her pretty little chatterings and of the pretty little motions of her hands and feet. And she thought she could trust Edward, for there was not any doubt of Maisie's passion for Edward. She raved about him to Leonora as Leonora had heard girls rave about drawing masters in schools. She was perpetually asking her boy-husband why he could not dress, ride, shoot, play polo, or even recite sentimental poems like their major. And young Maiden had the greatest admiration for Edward, and he adored, was bewildered by, and entirely trusted his wife. It appeared to him that Edward was devoted to Leonora, and Leonora imagined that when poor Maisie was cured of her hair and Edward had seen enough of her he would return to her. She had the vague, passionate idea that when Edward had exhausted a number of other types of women, he must turn to her. Why should not her type have its turn in his heart? She imagined that, by now, she understood him better, that she understood better his vanities, and that, by making him happier, she could arouse his love. Florence knocked all that in the head. End of Part 3, Chapter 5